what does the people of the money want in terms of being able to maximize the metrics that they're pursuing? So if it's something like Spotify, if it's something like SiriusXM, something like iHeartMedia, what are the shows that would drive instant impressions and, and stuff like that? And the answer seems to be pretty clear. Welcome, B2B startups, change-ups, scale-ups, and grown-ups. This is the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. I'm your host, Eric Schwartzman. Let's do this. Our guest today is Nick Kwa. He writes a newsletter about the podcasting business called Hot Pod that has been syndicated by Harvard's Neiman Lab since 2014. He's the host of Servant of the Pod, a podcast about podcasts that he does with LAist Studios and a contributing writer to New York Magazine's Vulture. Nick, welcome to my podcast. Hey, how's it going? So Nick, how do you like living in Boise? What's it like in Boise? You know, um, I can't really tell you because uh, I moved here and then four months after that, uh, the pandemic started. So it's been largely sort of shut down. But, um, you know, it's, I really like the city as much as I've experienced it. Um, it's, uh, it's nice and quiet, which is what I'm looking for these days, I guess. You know, I... I I'm in LA and I'm all, we're the, the never ending discussion in the household is when are we going to get out of here? Where are we going to go? You know, there were the riots and there's, it's, it's really uh, a, a city that's buckling under the pressure of uh, population growth and the pandemic and homelessness and systemic racial injustice. I mean, everything we got all of it's a trifecta. So Boise's been one of the cities I've had my eye on. As as many Californians have, Idahoans have a very mixed feelings about that. Um, you know, the housing crunch is going to be pretty interesting as a result. <laughs> so yeah, why? So why Boise? Um, is there anything about you know? Boise that attracted you there versus the Great Lakes region? Because New York Times uh, Magazine ran that great climate migration story where they said, you know, the majority of, of wealth in the next hundred years in the U.S. will be people who sell their real estate holdings in the lower states and buy around the Great Lakes region. Yeah, I've heard of that. Um, so my partner's from here. She was born and raised here. And uh, it's uh, largely a personal family reason that we moved here. I am not American. I'm not from this country. And so I basically go anywhere uh, she wants to go to. So uh, that's that's the long shot answer. But the um, analysis of the Great Lakes region uh, being a likely sort of inflow uh, area in the country is um, it's definitely something that we're monitoring. It's also from like the least, how do we say, the however the climate change sort of affects in from a state per state basis, the Great Lakes region might end up being the more interesting, quote unquote, stable place, as or so that we feel. Who see? Who knows? This is neither here nor there. <laughs> yeah. Well, obviously, Boise, you know, where you're based, is a long way from Los Angeles. So, what brought you together with LAist Studios to produce your podcast, Servant to the Pod? Uh, well, for, first of all, it's Servant of Pod. Uh, there's no that. No, it's no Servant of that. Pod. Yeah, yeah. No worries about that. Just, oh, sorry a, about that. I thought it was Servant no, no, of no. the Pod. Oh, God, no, no. I'm sorry. Um, 
I have a prior relationship with folks at uh, KPCC and Elliot, um, and part of I had sort of two reasons why I wanted to link up with uh, at least an outfit in in Los Angeles. One is I have a sort of a prevailing theory that um, the podcast business, as currently constituted, is swinging from the East Coast to the West Coast in many ways, um, and uh, I feel like it's important at this point to partner for public radio station and see how that's like. Um, I'm a believer in public radio and I'm, I, I, even with all its problems, um, it's, I just felt like it was a pretty good relationship and has been a pretty good relationship so far. Yeah. Awesome. They, uh, public radio turns out amazing audio product. It's just unbelievable the quality. Um, so, you know, Boise obviously is even further away from Malaysia. I've been fortunate enough to go to Malaysia. I've, uh, worked for the, uh, U S department of state, um, uh, uh, embassy to Kuala Lumpur uh, on different projects. Um, talk to us about you know, where you where you're from in Malaysia, and uh, you know, tell us a little bit about your experience as a Malay. Uh, well, actually, so I'm, I'm I'm from Kuala Lumpur. Uh, oh, you're from I'm KL, from, okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm from KL, um, but I'm, I'm not Malay. I'm a I'm a Chinese, uh, sort of Malaysian uh, family immigrated there. Honestly, at some point, we actually are pretty sketchy on sort of rough as to where the lineage comes from. But we, you know, families from Southeast China, that's the furthest that we've understood where it come from. Um, or at least I've understood. I think my dad probably have a different story. Uh, you know, born and raised, it's, it's, um, it's a pretty hard country to explain to somebody who has very little context. I, can, I suppose I can say there are many things about Kuala Lumpur in particular. Well, let me, put, let me flip it around, actually. There are many things about Los Angeles that reminds me of Kuala Lumpur, from its inequalities to its sort of density and the sprawl, um, sort of mix of cultures. Uh, it is a unique country in many ways. Um, and uh, again, I think to most Americans, it's a pretty hard <laughs> sort of geopolitical lineage to explain from. It is quite, um, Southeast Asia is a very sort of odd, uh, different duck compared to what most Americans kind of understand about the sort of development of Eastern countries um, and so on and so forth. But I had a good time growing up there. Um, I had the opportunity to come out here to the U.S. to study for college. And that's what I did. And um, a, uh, a string of happenstance led me to stay. And uh, I have been here since uh, ever since for 13 years now. I spent a lot of time over there consulting. Also, the government of Singapore was a client of mine for many years. Mm. And maybe it's just my experience, but it seems like, you know, with in KL particularly, there's like a global hot pocket of visual design talent, like on Fiverr and Upwork. Mm. And I see that also like with people who produce merchandise, where they're mm -hmm. outsourcing a lot of the design to people in KL. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because it's such a small country, yet they seem to be so overrepresented on the gig sites for visual design talent. Any sense on why? Well, uh, with the caveat that uh, I haven't, it's been a long time since I lived there, but I do keep out of news. And with the caveat that I'm not a, an expert on sort of uh, economic development and uh, post-industrial theory. But I, I imagine it's some combination of, on the one hand, you have a pocket of countries in Southeast Asia. And I do, I do not think Malaysia is distinct in this. I think uh, other countries within the region, um, with the exception of maybe Singapore, um, is, are sort of end up being sort of really interesting creative gig talent pools for uh, quote unquote richer countries. There's like a globalization disparity there. 
outsourcing instead of giving jobs to Americans. Uh, it's cheaper to give it to you know other countries, quote unquote, developing countries like Malaysia. And we've also been an emerging, growing economy for a very long time. Uh, you know, one of the sort of facets of that is that you do have a younger generation that are you know less slides less into places like manufacturing or or agriculture and more into services and creative industries and so there's a sort of uh, deficit right on the one hand you have interest among labor pool to get into the creative arts i was one of those people when i was growing up i wanted to make films but there is no money there is no market uh for sort of region uh local or regional films and so you know if you do do sort of develop the talent for you know, whether it's visual design or, or it's or it's editing or, or filmmaking or, or whatever, um, you can make your own products, right? So the offer comes in from places like America and, and other countries looking for cheap outsourced labor. And so that is why we see things like this. Of course, there are deep, deep inequities and severe, you know, criticism and questions about globalization to be had <laughs> as it, in this picture, but that is the world that we have. Well, um, I can tell you that I went to film school to be a filmmaker, too. So we have that in common. Um, Nick, you've written so much about podcasts and interviewed so many great podcasters. What makes a great podcast? Oh, boy, I wish I could tell you. <laughs> it's a bit like the, um, what's the word, that legal statute on what constitutes pornography. You do it when you see it. Um, <laughs> I think, but you know, a couple of core principles apply. Um, you know, and and I say this through a different couple of different models. There there are the shows that are built for mass consumption, and there are shows that are built for niche consumptions. Not to just collapse things into just two categories, but broadly speaking, I think the strategy is a little different. But I think the the core idea is the same: is that you're making something that should be worthy of somebody's time. And that um, can be expressed in many different ways. Uh, I'm not the kind of person that would say shorter podcasts are better than longer podcasts. I'm not the kind of person that would say that highly, quote unquote, highly edited podcasts are better than uh, podcasts that shoot from the hip. Um, but it needs to sort of either solve a problem in somebody's life or, or to sort of justify its existence in somebody's um, you know, stream of the day. We only have 24 hours uh, in a day, only so much of which we're awake, only so much of which that we're free to consume me um, media experiences or do whatever uh, we want to do as opposed to we have to do. So um, on a very fundamental elemental level, it is a thing that needs to justify its existence and give some value to the person listening to it, whether it's information uh, or it's a good story well told. Um, it can it can sort of express itself in different ways, but also just like a thoughtfulness of why why somebody's making something that that tends to be a pretty useful vector for like a quote unquote good podcast. If the goal is sheer audience size, what if anything does that say about how long and frequently new episodes should be released? Um, again, it's sort of. Are there any generalizations at all you can make there? Uh, unfortunately, I'm cursed as cursed being a sort of person who does not believe in generalizations. Uh, <laughs> I'm, uh, in fact, I'm a pretty literal uh, person. If the goal is the audience size, there are multiple strategies to to achieve that outcome, and the strategies are are just what they are, which are plans, and we'll see whether that works out. Uh, when you kind of execute the tactics towards the strategy, the equivalent here is like um, if you're if you're if you had a product company. Let's say you're selling 
an energy drink. One way to say, one way to answer the question of how do you reach the biggest like pool of buyers possible is maybe you want a, a partner of big box stores, right? <laughs> maybe you want a partner of a mid-sized store and invest more in marketing. There, are, I, there is no one-size-fits-all answer. Is what I'm saying. It is just a sum of all strategies and tactics. You cover mostly, you know, mainstream podcasts and the big companies that are behind podcast production. Um, do you listen yourself to any podcasts about marketing? I don't, actually. Um, there are many niches in the world, but unfortunately, that niche is not one of mine. Are there any sort of... However, what do you mean by marketing podcast? Say it again. What do you mean by the mar- by marketing podcast? Well, there are a number of podcasts like this one about mm-hmm. digital marketing and how to market a business. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there are, are many. There's one... Um, that most of them are short form. Uh, mm-hmm. the, the top ones are short form, 10 minutes or less. They release a show Monday through Friday. And, um, you know, they're doing, you know, up, up to a million a year in, in ad revenue. Cool. Good for them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One it of is, them is yeah. actually uh, the marketing school with Eric Sue and uh, Neil Patel. And yeah. I know they're doing eight hundred thousand uh, monthly ads, uh, annual ad spend from Bluehost. Good for them. I really enjoyed listening to your interview with Kara Swisher. And one of the things that really stood out to me in that interview was the impact she wants her work to have. What impact do you want your work to have? Well, that's a good question. Um, I just want to be able to do less harm and help as many people as I can in whatever form that take, that may take and, you know, make a living doing that. That is the way that I see my place in the world for now. Uh, I have no pretense of being anything or anybody more than that. And, and Nick, you know, you had Kara Swisher on, you had Gia Tolentino on. I did not have Gia Tolentino on. Oh, she was mentioned she was in mentioned. the Kara Swisher interview. Um, but you've had such amazing guests. Like, you know, Kara's obviously huge. I had her, you know, you know, before she was huge. Um, how do you get such amazing guests? Uh, I ask. <laughs> Uh, I, so you book your own show? I well, I work with a, a small team of producers. We get together and we sort of figure out who's going to be interesting or who we want to talk to or what's the news hook, and then we come up with the target list. And either I reach out or one of them reaches out if I if I uh, am overtaxed or don't have that relationship. Uh, but we've been pretty lucky so far. We've gotten almost everybody that we wanted to to get on the show. Um, and you know, it's um, people are. People are generally nice and people generally want to talk about their work, which is, which is nice. When, when you look at podcasts that are not produced by professional media organizations, but are successful in terms of either generating ad revenue or leads for whoever produces them, do you have a sense in that category of what separates the winners from the losers? Um, well, generally speaking, a commitment to the fact that you're making something, that, that's always a good place to start. Um, winners and losers, I think it's, it's a framing that I, I generally do not like to, to sort of attend to. It's a very zero sum doggy dog, kind of, very kind of cold view of the world kind of thing. 
everybody can find their place in the world when it comes to um, particularly internet publishing for good and for bad, as we've seen recently with QAnon stuff. Um, but in general, I think people, that when it comes to quote-unquote non-professional um, productions, again, uh, a concept that I would contest, that I think the, think it, the thinking is always like, who are you serving and can you just keep serving those people in whatever form that means, whether it's through a podcast or whether it means podcast plus newsletter, just being able to maintain that relationship and being thoughtful about the relationship tends to be pretty good. There are a lot of examples of, of shows that have developed followings without being thoughtful, and that's that's something that happens too. But in general, or I like to operate from a position of advocating for you know good community development, talking to the people who listen to you, leaving lines open, that kind of thing. What impact, if any, do you think Clubhouse will have on the audio podcasting industry? Well, um, I wrote a whole column about this recently. Um, I actually think that it is, um, it, it's a complicator, right? It's not necessarily a negator in a lot of ways. Uh, Clubhouse are, is a couple of things. One is it is not a substitute for on-demand audio because it is essentially a horizontal social audio experience. Whereas podcasting at this point, um, it's, it's more like a sort of a classic media distribution network. So the way that you think, it's like the difference between TikTok and television. Right, it's it's one is a little flatter and one is kind of uh, horizontal, uh, vertical, in, in sort of one to many. And um, I think Clubhouse also the the line has been said a couple of times from a couple of audio company executives I've spoken to. This might be um, a very diplomatic sort of statement, but they see it as a validation uh, that uh, of audio in general that people want more of this, that there is more innovation to be done in this space. Again, I think it's a diplomatic response, uh, but I also think that there's somewhat something something true about that. Um, the sort of epoch of of the of digital and the internet publishing sort of era that we just sort of stepped out on, maybe up until 2016, 2017, has been predominantly visual. And I think the internet and the connected, uh, in, you know, internet-enabled uh, distribution of media is not just visual, right? It, it, it's a bunch. It can be a bunch of other things as well, and we're, we're seeing that that also encompasses audio. And um, so I don't think, uh, I think Clubhouse is a, it bodes well for, for digital audio more broadly. Have you been checking it out? Is there, are there any, uh, you know, things you find interesting about it personally? I, I have been checking it out. Um, I, I think it's still in this phase of, I'm interested in it as a phenomenon. Um, and However, I can't quite tell you any specific media experiences I've had on it, a specific panel, a specific moment that um, leaps out to me as like, this is like super interesting. And when I sort of think about a new formation of a new technology, right, I, there, there are a couple of priors in my lifetime or sort of in my sort of like sphere of consciousness that like I can draw back from. Like I think about something like the early development of virtual reality, the early development of video games, the medium is the point, the medium is the conversation, right? Does anybody have like a real sort of heart nose, like definitive virtual, virtual reality experience just yet? No, but there's a lot about it that's still very interesting and novel. And I think we're in that space of Clubhouse where the substance is yet to sort of really kind of coagulate and sort of reveal itself as to how it's going to really occupy our lives. But, um, but that takes time. That takes time and that takes uh, competitive dynamics. That takes community dynamics. Um, TBD Clubhouse itself uh, would be the one that sort of ushers us into this other realm of audio. 
Um, but um, I think there's something there. I just don't think, I think the more interesting thing about it is like the structure as opposed to the content right now, which is two different things. When I um, got started in podcasting, you know, er early days, I uh, created the podcast for uh, the Los Angeles Opera, which is still around called Behind the Curtain at the LA Opera. And then I did another one for Hollywood Reporter and Billboard around their film and TV music conference. Mm -hmm. And what was interesting was at the time, podcasting was so new anyone would be on a podcast just because they wanted to know what a podcast was. It was like mm -hmm. just the idea of a podcast was in and, in and of itself enough to get someone to want to participate. So it's interesting to see sort of from a random perspective how pop culture taps into the sort of an entertainment nerve that people are interested in. And I wonder, you know, since you're sort of looking at the entire podcasting business and you sort of see, you know, the, the forest through the trees, I wonder if you have any thoughts on sort of what that nerve is today. And if you think there's sort of a certain genre, genre or format that's best situated to tap it. That's a good question. I actually interviewed somebody yesterday um, who is doing a project about reality television. And this will circle back. Um, one of the premises of the conversation is that the way that culture and pop culture and mass culture and entertainment works now, obviously it's significantly different than it was two years ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, certainly 20 years ago. And that there's a sort of a flatness and a saturation and, and a sort of like, it's a disparate nature of what constitutes pop culture right now. We have infinite micro celebrities. We have very few celebrities, like major, major celebrities at this point. And the meaning of celebrity and the meaning of entertainment, the meaning of cultural products, they've changed to become significantly flatter. Some would argue democratized, some would argue commodified. It really depends on where you're coming from. Um, so I think above all things, you can separate a question to two different buckets. One is what can produce the most material value and the other is what can produce the most cultural value. And I think they're actually pretty different at this point. Uh, the material value always comes down to what do, what does the, what does the people of the money want in terms of being able to maximize the metrics that they're pursuing. So if it's something like Spotify, if it's something like SiriusXM, something like iHeartMedia, what are the shows that would drive instant impressions and, and stuff like that? And the answer seems to be pretty clear over the past six to 12 to 24 months, which is celebrities at this point. Um, but in terms of an actual cultural culture and money sort of distributed to, you know, beyond these platforms, beyond these sort of core nodes of power, um, I think the fact that we just, we have conversations about like, marketing podcasts, being able to generate $800,000 in revenue per year, million dollars revenue per year. And yet it's sort of like a, in the quote unquote fringes of culture, whatever that means, it is the point. The point is, is that we can now have, we're in our operating position where you have niches and niches and niches and niches. And the quote unquote sort of mainstream culture doesn't have to acknowledge it in order for it to be a valid, quote unquote, valid community and economy. And so I think that is what makes this interesting. So. All of this is a, is a non-answer to your question because I, I think because the question no longer applies, which is like, there's no more nerve. It is, we all have different nerves now. And I think that's, that's sort of the, what's been the interesting thing of, you know, I write about podcasts primarily, but um, I'm one of those people who believes that everything's sort of connected and that everything is, says something about something else because we're, we work in an integrated system. So there are a lot of stories about podcasting that's actually the story about broader culture, digital media, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think one of those stories has been a flattening. And even though power might be still concentrated, the opportunities for more power is 
I think still wider than ever. And I think that's, that's the theory that I continue to work with. When, when you look at podcasts uh, that are produced from a topic standpoint, and, and let me just say, I know like you did that show about how the Spanish language market is underserved. Um, but is there an underserved English language market? I mean, there are podcasts about everything, but from a topic standpoint, do you see an underserved English language market? I think there are always underserved markets in any languages, right? Um, it, this depends on what the frame that you're taking it from. So if you say adopt the, the sort of perspective of, um, you know, racial inequity in the United States in terms of what, is, what audiences are being served or not, um, the argument should be made and can be made and will be made that uh, there aren't enough black podcasts, sort of black led podcasts, black owned podcasts to serve black communities or black audiences, whatever that means. Like however you want to sort of arrange that, that power structure. Um, I, I could say the same thing about Asian Americans. Um, there are relatively few shows and few, not just podcasts, but media entities in general um, tapping into the vein of what it means to be Asian American in 2021 when people are beating the shit out of us um, for COVID. And so there are always going to be underserved topics. It's not language is one way to think about it, but you can also think about it from, a, again, topic standpoint. You can think, think about it from an issue standpoint. You can think about it from a genre and aesthetic standpoint. There will always be something that has not been said yet or has been, that needs to be said more of. Um, and the question is whether you can A, get the audience for it and B, do that in a way that you could pay your bills and maybe make a, make a living off it. And that's, that's, that's my answer to that question, I guess. If, uh, if you worked for Courtney Holt and uh, he said to you, I need you to make a podcast for me. And the goal is to make it a top podcast in terms of downloads as quick as possible. And I don't care what's it, what it's about. What would you do? I don't think I would work for a Courtney Holt in general. I think it's my answer to that question. Uh, but if, and so essentially the premise of your question is, well, if I were to sort of be given the sort of license to create a hit, what would be the strategy? The strategy would be to buy, not to make. Uh, if that would be the, if that's the um, rubric that you're working from, because one of the things that's interesting about podcasting as YouTube is interesting, it's the same kind of principle is that like creative culture and success isn't top down. Right. It, the, the thing that's really interesting about this space and many spaces like it is that like good shit bubbles from the bottom. So I wouldn't say it's not about making a top hit. I'm going to, I would go out and sort of try to find a number of shows that has, had are striking out for the opportunity. Maybe they're under resourced, maybe they're under indexed and try to, you know, use whatever budget I'd be given to either license or acquire or partner with a portfolio of these shows to get to a certain metric that isn't a number one hit. Because the point isn't a number one hit. The point for Spotify is to get more users, drive more revenue, drive more admits, spend time spent on the platform. So the conversations about a hit, that is a cultural one. But if the if I'm working for such a company like that, the point is is to sort of fulfill another metric that is kind of beyond culture. It's harder than culture. Nick, I, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Final question. Uh, if you had a magic wand and you could change one thing about the world we live in today, what would you change? Um, redistribute wealth, no billionaires, more millionaires, more hundred heirs, more hundred thousand heirs, universal, universal basic income, universal healthcare, um, and uh, 
that it's not a one thing, it's a many thing. Basically, uh, a more comp- well, if there's a one thing, you know, get rid of the filibuster. <laughs> if people want to subscribe to Hot Pod and listen to Servant of Pod, how can they do that? Uh, you can subscribe to Hot Pod on hotpodnews.com. And Servant of Pod can be found, as the phrase goes, anywhere you find your podcasts. However, Apple's unhappy to hear that. So you can find it on Apple, Spotify, and wherever you find your podcasts. Nick Kwa, thanks for joining us. All right. Thanks for listening. This is Eric Schwartzman for the B2B Lead Gen Podcast. See you next time.